Hi, join us, Rad Chat, at the Oncology Professional Care, the UK's leading event for the whole oncology community. It is free for all healthcare professionals and is returning this year face-to-face to the Excel Centre in London on 24th and 25th May. Go to oncologyprofessionalcare.co.uk to book your place. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 41. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by my fellow host, Naaman Jalka Anderson. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Dr. Rita Ramaday, who will who talked specifically around being a consultant allied health professional and also her clinical academic work, equality, diversity and inclusion. So if you haven't had a chance to have a listen, please do go and have a look. So we're pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, uh, Professor Alan Pacey, who will be discussing his amazing career, his research and the impact of cancer on fertility. So hello and welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure. Great to be here. (laughs) Oh, thank you. So obviously, we, we now need to say you've just got your MBE, your professorship. Are you going to whip it out for us? <laughs> well, I kind of, the professorship only comes, comes with a new hat, but the MBE comes with a bit more of a, of a trinket. So, yeah, I got the MBE actually in 2016, I think it was. Uh, and you have a nice little pre-COVID meeting with the monarch, except mine, mine was Prince Charles, which was nice. And we had a lovely chat and I managed to embarrass him. Uh, but you get a thing that looks like that, Amazing. which I have worn once for for show. So that's the medal itself, which comes in a in a nice little box. But uh, the bit I wasn't expecting uh, is this, and you get a thing called a warrant, uh, which is wow. signed by the Queen somewhere at the bottom, uh, and Prince. Oh, is it signed by Prince Philip? Yes, signed by Prince. I was going to say I can't see the Queen's signature on there. <laughs> yeah. And it just, you can see my, you can see my YouTube lights there. Um, but that, that's kind of pride of place at the top of the stairs. And it's kind of the official document that says you have whatever privilege that you have. And, and, and the privilege is a few apart from putting letters after your name. But I do think I can get married or buried in some part of Westminster Abbey if I want to. <laughs> so and so forth. So that's, that's a privilege. That's amazing. So, so it was good. I was amazing. chuffed. And actually, I didn't. I, I still don't know who nominated me. I have a clue, but I think it was in part or big part to do with the work that I uh, I was doing with young people facing cancer treatment, cancer diagnosis, and I think that played a big part in uh, in the nomination. Oh, that's amazing! And I love the fact that I was able to get a quote of "Whip it out" in a cancer and fertility podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, do you want to start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and your career, your amazing career? Well, yeah, well, thank you. Um, I've done nothing more in my career than answer email and say yes to most things that came my way. And that was the secret of it and not being afraid. Um, so, I, I, you know, I did a general biological sciences degree. Um, I toyed with the idea of going to medical school after that, I, but, but decided to do a PhD instead. And the PhD that I did was uh, looking at the biology of sperm. Uh, And uh, so it was very cell biology focused. Uh, And I went away from that. That was at the University of St. Andrews, a lovely place. And I had a lovely time. Um, But I got my PhD in 1992, I think it was. 
Uh, and then I got the opportunity to go and study in Nice, just outside Nice, uh, on a Royal Society Fellowship, again to do further work on sperm. And I was supposed to be there for two years, and then after a year, a job became available in Sheffield, and I applied for it and got it. And it was just a, a really amazing and incredible time. So the early 90s were when IVF was being developed with gusto. IVF units were springing up. Um, the law had just come into force to regulate IVF. There was a whole kind of regulatory strata in there. Science was exciting. People were looking at ways to, uh, to improve the efficiency of IVF and fertility treatments and diagnosis. And, and there were lots of really exciting projects going on. And, and also it was the point at which sperm banking really started to take off. I mean, we've been banking sperm for men with cancer probably since the early 80s, but it really took off with, with gusto and with, with vigor in the early 90s. And I've rapidly found myself getting interested in that and getting, getting involved in that uh, much by probably about 1995. I was in charge of the sperm banking service in Sheffield. And that's pretty much what I did for the next 25 years, along with other stuff, of course, and writing papers and so on and so forth. So that was my introduction to cancer, really, was seeing men after men after men, boys, boys after boys, coming to the clinic to bank their sperm and starting to see what they needed, uh, but also seeing the gap between what they, what they wanted and what was provided. And that, that was just a really interesting and exciting time. What sort of research are you looking at specifically at the moment? I know you've published quite a lot of research. Um, it's really, really good to see. Yeah, pro pro probably about 250 papers or so on and so forth. So I have to say, you know, my research career is, is closer to the end than the beginning now. Uh, I, uh, I'm in charge of two medical school departments. So I'm in charge of, uh, of, of probably about three or 400 staff now. Uh, so I spend most of my time doing kind of management things, but in terms of, of the research that's that's going on at the moment, we've got uh, I've got students still doing the kind of uh, work looking at sperm that that I started life with and different questions, more molecular techniques. But I've also got a, a project which is just almost completed or the complete the first phase of working with a young um, trainee. Uh, uh, gynecologist who, who wants to specialise in oncofertility and we've had a three four year project looking at gestational trophoblast disease which is absolutely nothing to do with sperm but looking to to do with um, cancer of the placenta essentially and the impact that that has on women uh, and that is that is a devastating one because if you get diagnosed with that early in pregnancy then y your pregnancy your, your next chance for pregnancy could be many years away until that is treated um, working with people in Edinburgh and Leeds on better um, information and resources for men and boys who are diagnosed with cancer and who want to think about their fertility. Um, I'm working with the World Health Organization on global guidelines. Uh, I'm working with a group of Europeans on, on what are the top questions in, in male fertility at the moment. So. So I am pretty busy, but my time in the lab doing stuff with my hands, I'm afraid has gone, which is a shame because I really do like it. So we do have quite a lot of um, patients who actually listen to the podcast and we put out on social media a kind of poll to see, you know, was there anything specific that people wanted to know? And um, 
lots of patients kind of commented on the fact that they didn't know necessarily they were at the start of their cancer pathway and they didn't know maybe what the impact of cancer was going to have on their fertility. Can you kind of give us a bit of a breakdown of, of what typically you will see in terms of the effects of cancer treatment? Yeah, I mean, it depends, which is a really odd, not unhelpful thing to say. It depends on the cancer, depends on where it is, depends on its stage. Uh, but it also depends on the treatment path that is then planned. Um, so, you know, I would argue, uh, and this isn't meant to sound trite, uh, but a, uh, a tumour on the, on the ear that can be removed by surgery probably has very little impact on an individual's fertility. But uh, if we have to start giving radiotherapy, or we have to start giving chemotherapy, and I know this is a rad chat um, uh, podcast, so I'm going to talk too much about chemotherapy, but you know, anything that has the possibility of affecting the brain, believe it or not, or the ovaries or testicles, so in the pelvic region, or the uterus in women, uh, can have a, a negative impact on fertility. Now, why the brain? Um, the brain is where the control systems are for the production of hormones that lead to sperm production or egg development. Uh, so, you know, radiotherapy to the brain can have an impact on the way that those, uh, those hormones are delivered or how they're produced, and that can have an effect on subsequent fertility. Um, it's different in men and women because women have all of the eggs that they are ever going to have already in their ovaries, and they lose them slowly at each month uh, when they ovulate. Um, men produce sperm continuously until they are, uh, well, pretty much throughout life, unless something stops it from about 13 to probably about 75 or 80. So uh, the effects are different. Um, a lack of hormones from the brain may stop sperm production, and it may mean that the sperm production doesn't restart properly, but it will stop ovulation, but it won't necessarily affect the number of eggs that are there. So in that way, we can provide drugs to women to kickstart the ovaries into action and help them to ovulate uh, more eggs again. Now, it's a different matter when you're thinking about the pelvis, because if we're delivering radiotherapy to the pelvis, then that's where the testicles in a man can get an insult of radiotherapy, and that can damage the sperm production cells, and it can irreversibly damage the sperm production cells. So that means when a man comes out of radiotherapy, he may produce less sperm per unit time than he did before, or indeed no sperm if the dose has been very high. In women, again, it's slightly different because in women, the pool of eggs is finite. So if the ovaries get an assault of radiation, it can reduce that pool. And if it depletes it, there's no way back. There's no way to make new eggs for a woman where that pool has been diminished. And whether that's a small reduction or a big reduction will depend on the dose of radiotherapy, but also where it's targeted. I mean, there are strategies where you can move the ovaries out the way surgically if that's, if that's a risk. The other thing for women is if the uterus gets a dose of radiotherapy and a high dose of radiotherapy, that can affect its ability to hold a pregnancy to term irrespective of what happens to the um, ovaries. So in those cases, it may well be that a woman can get pregnant, but she can't maintain that pregnancy. Now that happens in very high doses of radiation, um, 
but it's it's an independent effect to any damage to the ovaries so it the effects really depend on on what's being targeted how much it's being targeted and of course to some extent how old you are at the time it's being targeted so arguably in a young woman um, there's more prospects for her to recover uh, her egg numbers or her egg numbers not to deplete quite to the same level whereas a woman in her mid 30s um, or late 30s it may just actually finish off the number of eggs that are there and, and thrust her into a, an early menopause so you've asked a very good question the, the your patient have asked a very good question but actually it's a really complicated answer and I think to some extent that is why patients get frustrated with doctors because it's how long is a piece of string sometimes and of course the treatment pathway that is begun may not be the end treatment pathway because things change along the way and if a patient doesn't respond you may then have to change the tack and then that makes it doubly complicated to know what's going to happen so for all of those reasons all of those reasons this is why it's imperative that a fertility discussion happens at the very very beginning and that due consideration is given to fertility preservation and in men that means at the moment banking sperm and for women it means either banking sperm uh, sorry banking eggs or taking a piece of the ovary and putting that in the freezer so it can be re-stitched back into the woman later and and of course by taking it out of the body it means it doesn't get that um, radiotherapy assault now that's that's about as simple as, as I can make it it gets doubly complicated when you've got radiotherapy combination with chemotherapy because then you've got systemic stuff flowing around the body which goes everywhere uh, so if you've got a chemotherapy and a radiotherapy treatment option then that it gets doubly complicated I think what's interesting is that although that may sound very doomy um, actually the prospects for many patients fertility post-treatment are probably more optimistic than they realize and probably more optimistic than most oncologists or uh, people involved in delivering radiotherapy realize so lots of the data out there from big epidemiological studies show that so that actually um, contraception is as much of an issue post-treatment as is infertility of course depending on, on how old you are so that's that's the uh, Professor Pacey, <laughs> global view of that, and, and, and that's about as simple as I can make it. I think that was a brilliant way to explain it, and actually it really highlights how complicated it is. Um, it's not as simple as it probably has been in the past, where mm. perhaps now we're a lot better at diagnosing patients earlier, and patients are living uh, you know, with or treatable, not curable cancers for even longer than ever before. Yeah. Um, so something a few patients have asked me before, and I think have reached out via Instagram, um, is so with sperm banking and egg harvesting um, what is it like is it painful um, sperm banking is surprisingly unpainful and uh, some men might describe it as enjoyable at least for a moment in time when they're ejaculating um, I I have to say you know I say that in a trivial way because I'm a bloke and I you know blokes tend to respond to that kind of humor I've, I've discovered but actually it's it's it can be stressful so just imagine you're a, you're a guy you've got 
uh, you've, you've got a cancer diagnosis, you're facing treatment in two or three days, and then some guy, a woman, says, you've got to go to the sperm bank this afternoon. You've got to turn up to the sperm bank, fill out loads and loads of forms. You can get, an e you can get a mortgage in less forms than it takes to bank sperm, quite frankly. You've got to sit down with somebody for three quarters of an hour and go through all of this paperwork, which is just seems bizarre at the time. You've got to think about what may happen afterwards if you don't survive and name a partner and all this kind of thing. And then you get kind of thrust into this little room and you've got half an hour to masturbate a sample. Well, you know, uh, it, it's not <laughs> performance anxiety is a thing. And we do our best to make sure that it's uh, it's as easy as possible. It's as straightforward as possible. But men sometimes find it difficult and pressurizing. And I get that. I get that. Absolutely. Can I interrupt you? Yeah. <laughs> Can I interrupt you with a nice story that my husband will love me for sharing? Go on. So I know you know that I went through IVF quite a lot of times and my husband was going in for that pressurised half an hour appointment and so I decided to take great glee in the fact that um, obviously I knew he might be using his phone for <laughs> some kind of reason whilst he's in there. So I basically went, uh, we went on WhatsApp at that stage. So I spent the half an hour texting all my friends to say he might need some reassurance oh. and support during this, this time. <laughs> and whilst he was in there, he said that basically he received about 50 text messages whilst he was in this god-awful room having to masturbate and he said it was the worst experience of his life so I obviously have now utilized this opportunity mm. to uh, publish it to the world and share that story but you, you did honestly it is it is one of those things that you just cringe at but you know that the long-term effects of having to do that are beneficial Joe were they just text messages or were they Naughty pictures, pictures that were being sent to him is that why he was worried <laughs> I'll tell you a story. We, we, I think he got a range of absolutely everything. <laughs> we, we, we had a bit of a run-in with, uh, with, with various people in the hospital. Uh, one was infection control, because, of course, in the old days, we used to use magazines. And I had the delightful job of going down West Street to, to buy the magazines once or twice a year. And the infection control lady said, oh, you can't possibly hand these magazines out to man after man after man. Just think about the infection control risk. And so then I said... Well, that's fine then. You know, they've all got smartphones. Why don't we just open up the Wi-Fi so they can log on and look at whatever it is they want to do? And the IT people were saying, oh, my goodness, you can't use the NHS infrastructure for that. That's not appropriate at all. So I was having this constant battle with, with different parts of the hospital over the facility. And then estates got involved. And I said, you know, look, would you like to masturbate in this room? Come on, let's have some nice curtains and some posters on the wall. And, you know, let's get rid of the couch and, and have a nice sofa and some soft furnish. Oh, and it was just it's it's one of the delights of running a facility like that. Yeah. Do you know one of the things that Lee always said to me? Surely you would just laminate all of the pages. <laughs> Though they were they were some that were laminated, but he did say that one of the pieces of information he got was that he had to wash his genitals beforehand, and he said the sink was at above waist height, and he said, "How am I going to get my penis anywhere near that?" And surely that's not hygienic. And honestly, some of the conversations we had, we're quite an open family, but it does it it is you, you know you're absolutely right that whole consideration of the estates is really really important hmm. now imagine thinking about all that when you're 13 you've got your parents outside uh 
so you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds, uh, you know, some of them can't wait to get going and they, you know, they'll masturbate in the consulting room, never mind the, the little room we've got provided. But others, again, find it stressful. And, and you know, and part of the skill that we had was we would, it would almost be like a French farce. And, you know, part the admin team would take the parents away so that when we came out of the consulting room that there was no parents sitting in the waiting room and we could just not take this lad nicely into the room and have a discreet conversation. And sometimes we allow the guys to produce on the ward if they're an impatient and again that was occasionally the nurses were great and they would see me coming down the ward and they'd know exactly what I'd want and they'd be in the room uh, with the lad and they'd say to the parents come on let's go and have a cup of tea and a chin wag let him have some time on his own without necessarily disclosing that I was on my way to have a discussion about sperm banking because this lad wanted to have it alone which is his right so it it's it's complicated at multi layers. Uh, so whilst I make light of sperm banking and it is a source of, of certain after dinner speeches that I can deliver uh, for a fee, uh, it's um, it's a it, it's very, it's something that we have to give consideration to because if you've got two days to do it and it's going to shape the rest of your life, we have to make a reasonable stab at getting it getting it right now. There could be surgical approaches to that. So your question initially was, does it hurt? There could be surgical approaches to that. And that it is possible to take sperm from the epididymis, from one of the tubes that comes out of the testicle. It is possible to take sperm from a testicular biopsy. But that is not your first thought, and that is not your first approach. And in somebody facing subsequent radiotherapy or chemotherapy, uh, it, it's often something that's thought a step too far in most cases. 98 97, 98% of guys that get referred are able to do it the good old fashioned way through masturbation. So that's men. <laughs> what I haven't said there is the options for men or boys who aren't producing sperm because they're too young. Uh, and there's a lot of work going on now to look at whether we can cryopreserve pieces of testicle that we can remove surgically. That's not yet mainstream, but there is um, there is uh, work going on in Oxford and Edinburgh to look at that to try and make it mainstream. Uh, so, fertility preservation for males. What, what does that involve? Uh, it involves a surgical procedure. It involves uh, taking a piece of testicle uh, from the boy and then that is frozen very carefully and placed in liquid nitrogen. I think the big thing to, that is unknown at the moment is then what you do with it. Um, I think the prospects, personally, I think the prospects for um, being able to transplant that back are probably low uh, because it, it, sperm need to be connected to, you know, the tubules all need to be connected together and that's, that would almost be impossible. So I think what people are thinking is potentially there's going to be a way to uh, create, use that piece of tissue to create sperm in the lab for someone, uh, but we haven't quite perfected that yet. Uh, so that's that's research that's ongoing, not by me, but by others. So that's males. Females, does it hurt? Um, well, if we're going to do fertility preservation for females, then we have to be able to capture the egg uh, or eggs that are in the ovary ready to be released. This takes much longer. Um, so in the case of a... Uh, a cancer patient often time is is against you on this um, in a sense uh, what happens is half an IVF cycle happens so the woman is given ovulatory drugs to trigger her, her ovaries to produce more eggs than they normally would 
And then just before they're about to be released, um, she would go into theatre and uh, usually under local anaesthetic, a bit of sedation, um, she would then have those eggs, uh, for the want of a better word, sucked out um, with a fine needle that, that enters the ovaries by going out the top of the uh, top of the uterus. Um, it, it, is, it leads to a bit of pain, uh, both at the time, but also subsequently in the subsequent days. Um, the medication at the time, I think I've not, I, I've never experienced this, but maybe Joe, you want to explain what it's like. But at the time, I would hope the medication nulls the pain. But then in the two or three days later, I suspect that paracetamol and analgesia would probably take that off. But I would imagine the woman's a bit stiff and a bit sore for a couple of days after that procedure. Is that right? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, during the procedure, I was off my face yeah. Um, yeah. and I didn't necessarily feel anything. Medazolam but or something, afterwards, I would it was like really severe period pain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that is... I guess was something that may put some women off. Um, it may be contraindicated for some cancer types too, uh, uh, but for many women, it is a it is a welcome way forward to preserve their fertility. Um, if there isn't the time, or in young girls uh, and girls uh, of teen years or even below. Um, it's possible again to take a piece of ovarian tissue and to store that in the freezer and keep it safe uh, for such time that she may want to consider having a family. Now, we do have uh, births that have been uh, obtained around the world from frozen ovarian tissue and uh, that's good news. There's probably a hundred births or more now, um, but so this has moved out from the experimental phase into the real world phase in many locations around the world now. Um, it, it's limited, I think, not by science but probably by regulation. In that, in order to do this properly, you've got to have a tissue bank, a regulated tissue bank, close to the place where the tissue is going to be taken. You can't just put ovarian tissue uh, in any old freezer and, and, and keep it there for, for 20 years. It's got to be, so there's a different level of regulation involved in this. And that's, that's I think, what's limiting it in certain parts of the world. For women that have had eggs frozen, uh, frozen then uh, the data on egg freezing is really, really good. Uh, and really using frozen eggs, we can almost get a woman back to almost natural fertility again. Uh, or at least comparable with, with cycles of IVF. Of course, the limiting factor there is how many eggs you have. Hopefully, you would have 10 or 12 eggs in the freezer. If, if the ovarian response has been poor and you've only got one or two eggs, then you really do reduce the chances of that being successful. And of course, you don't have time in the cancer cycle to repeat it because you've then got to get on with treatment. In a, if, if this was being done for social reasons, for example, you might do a couple of rounds of this egg freezing technique if the, if the response was poor. So the pain involved is really at the outset. It's involved at the outset, the, the process of, of, for want of a better word, sucking the eggs out of the ovary when they're close to being ovulated. Um, and that isn't for everyone, but actually it's bearable. Um, and so I think for many reason, women, they think it's, it's something worth doing. Where, where can people, so any 
maybe prospective patients or even relatives access information about all of this? Yeah, there's a number of resources around. I mean, I'm assuming your your podcast goes around the world. Um, if you're in the UK, um, there there is uh, the first port of call would be the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority website, hfea.gov.uk, I think. Um, and that, uh, that is our regulatory body in the UK, and they have some great resources about what can be done, but also where it can be done. Now, hopefully, um, the, the, the team involved in, in treating that cancer will be able to refer to the local place. Uh, but if that hasn't happened or the patient wants to make a different choice, then there's a find a clinic finder on there and you can, you can put in your postcode and it tells you where the nearest clinics are. Um, so that, if you're in the UK, that would be good. If you're in Europe, uh, there, there's information uh, from the European Society for Human Reproduction and Endocrinology. Uh, embryology, sorry, ESHRI, uh, they have some resources out there, but there's some also some, some European oncology uh, uh, places that you will know more than me, and maybe we can put some links up or something of, of uh, links to, to resources. In America, there's uh, ASCO, is it? The, they have uh, some professional resources as well as some uh, public resources. So it really does depend where you are around the world. But they're the three main places that I think I would recommend. And, and I'll, I'll hope you put some links together after, after we've finished this. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll, we'll link everything with the podcast. Um, it'd be really beneficial. We've had quite a few patients and even healthcare professionals kind of uh, contact us just about this podcast as well. So I know, Alan, you touched earlier about what kind of happens after radiotherapy, uh, sorry, not just radiotherapy, but after cancer treatment mm. and actually the prospects aren't as bad as some people think what sort of things can cancer patients or even their relatives or carers expect um you know especially if they want to go on to conceive post-treatment and how long might you suggest having to wait yeah. as well the wait the waiting one is is important um so the the you get different answers from different people so be aware of that my from what i see um you should generally wait for about a year both for men and women before you try and conceive and that's for a number of reasons uh, for, for in terms of gamete health and uh, the health of the sperm that are produced after treatment or, or the health of the eggs that are produced after treatment, it's necessary to wait for things to settle down. So in sperm, there is evidence that you see chromosomal abnormalities increase in the few months after treatment. In eggs, I think the same kind of data is there. So you kind of need physiology to settle down. So I think for the first year, contraception is is really key um, there's also the added complication for women that uh, if there was to be a relapse within that first year and when a relapse when the woman is pregnant that then makes it doubly complicated for her because then you're going to have to think about how you treat her cancer and protect the baby at the same time so there's a reason if you're a woman to wait and get the green light before you try for a pregnancy um, so there, that's the general rule. Now, if you're trying for uh, a baby uh, and you want to get on with it, uh, if you're a man and your, your, your partner is, is, is fine, then, then there's no reason why she couldn't try uh, with the frozen sperm whilst you're still in treatment or, or recovering in that first year. I would argue that you ought to think sensibly about that, though, because uh, pregnancy and uh, looking after a, a newborn is... A job in itself 
and if you're still feeling a bit unwell as a, as a partner, as a male partner, or you are facing a possible relapse or second round therapy, then maybe that's something you should wait. But of course, that will be dictated by partner's age. If, if partner's age determines that pregnancy should be started quicker, then, then maybe it's a risk worth taking. If you're a woman, uh, then uh, again, it, it's an age, it's, it's it indicated by age. Um, if you're a woman in, in the 20s, in her 20s, and you want to uh, have a family, then you've got time to wait. And you've got time to wait to try naturally after that first year of, of, of hiatus. Uh, and, you know, given that many women don't even start to think about having children until their early 30s, you know, being in that position in your early 20s is is potentially a luxurious position to be, as long as we're not worried about an early menopause. But of course, then if you've frozen your eggs, you've got those to fall back on as a second line therapy uh, if, if natural conception doesn't work. And if you've frozen ovarian tissue, then you've got that to fall back as a second line therapy as well. It's interesting in the frozen tissue studies, um, and I'm thinking about uh, the data from Edinburgh now. Um, Edinburgh had some really rigorous criteria about who could access uh, ovarian tissue cryopreservation so you had to be really looking at some hardline therapy for the cancer treatment before you even got into their trial and now what 10 15 20 years later when they look back the majority of patients that they they um, froze the ovarian tissue for still got pregnant naturally which is great and they've never needed to use it so that just shows you that that tr that trying naturally once you've waited that first year, is not a bad option, but it is something that's de determined by female age, both for men and women. Um, I've had more consultations with couples where my advice has been, go home and have a go, than it has, you need to go to the IVF unit. And the number of patients that come back and say, my goodness, that was the best advice anybody's given me. Because I think there's a fear there's a fear factor about trying to have a child naturally after cancer treatment and an understandable fear because people are worried about um, the quality of the sperm if they're a man or the ability to, to carry a pregnancy to term or even get pregnant in the first place if they're a woman. And so I think a bit of reassurance is not a bad strategy for people who want uh, to try for a family after cancer treatment. Of course, if you're older as a woman or you're, you're a man and your partner's older, then that's when to seek uh, medical, medical advice. And I would say, you know, if you're in your 30s, uh, you know, that's the time to go and get some, some tests done. Because we can easily test sperm. We can fairly easily test female fertility by doing some ultrasound or doing some hormone checks. So you can get a fertility MOT post-cancer treatment. And that should hopefully guide uh, the patient as to what they should do, whether they should go for it or seek a referral for some assisted reproduction. Alan, can I just ask, is there any eligibility criteria around IVF when you have um, a cancer patient? I know from my own personal experiences, you know, the criteria that we did or didn't meet essentially meant that we had to pay for all of our um, assisted fertility um, and assisted conception. But 
where does it, where does that stand for cancer patients and are there certain criteria that they have to meet i'm just thinking about maybe patients who smoke or um are maybe overweight some of the things that typically you would get told to consider if you were hoping to get nhs funded assisted conception yeah so the first thing to say is that the nice in in the uk we have this or in england and wales and and uh, we have this thing called nice uh and uh, that makes it very clear that if you're a cancer patient, the fertility preservation part at the beginning should be free, regardless of all of the things you mentioned and regardless of previous treatment, because the medical system is doing something to you that will lead to infertility. So the least it can do is preserve your fertility as best it can for free. That's more of a struggle than it seems Some in some places. So uh, the rules are... Uh, sometimes opaque, sometimes difficult. I wrote a paper last year with some uh, people interested in breast cancer and we found a real bamboozling set of rules for women with breast cancer uh, with regard to, to getting access for that fertility treatment in the first, uh, fertility preservation in the first place. Where it gets more, more controversial is what you do with that material. And that is where we do seem to have a postcode lottery in England and Wales, at least. In Scotland, it's much more uh, even-handed about things. Uh, I'm less sh sh clear about the rules in Northern Ireland, but in England and Wales, it is postcode lottery driven largely, and it depends on many factors, such as the number of previous children in the relationship, whether or not they're in the house or not. So a woman may not, who's had cancer may not have access to IVF if her partner, in some places, has a previous child, even though that previous child may be with the child's mother. So it gets very complicated. There are age limits. In some places there are BMI limits. In some places I have seen there are limits on whether or not a woman smokes uh, and so on and so forth. It is absolutely, totally confusing. And it's unfair and it makes it difficult for people to access treatment in a timely way. Now, it's, it's not for the oncology team to, to understand all that. That's where you do need to have a conversation with a GP or have a conversation with a fertility specialist at secondary level care in your local fertility hospital, and they should be able to unpack it for you. My advice has always been, if it is not working in your favour, um, before you spend your own money, write to the CCG and complain. Uh, write to your MP and try and get some leverage here because I think it's deeply, deeply, deeply unfair for people who've gone through cancer treatment and had their materials stored to then have to face uh, this battle. Um, unfortunately, many people have to pay for their private IVF or, or their pr private fertility treatment, cancer or not, uh, and, and that is a difficulty that we have in the UK. Of course, in other parts of the world with insurance-based systems, there are, in Australia, for example, they have an in a strong insurance-based system where I think it pays 80% of the costs. North America fertility is increasingly being covered by insurance. In Europe, I think it's a mixture of, uh, of arrangements, a lot of private medicine in many parts of Europe, although in some countries, uh, Holland, they have a, a strong national health service uh, that's run in a similar way to the UK. So it really, really does depend uh, on where you are in the world. I think one piece of advice I need to give um, is um, please, if you have fertility uh, material stored, sperm eggs or embryos, keep in touch with the clinic. 
there are strict rules about how long that material can be kept for, for reasons of consent or reasons of law. And the common message that I get from all over the world from fertility professionals is that we bank the stuff and then we never hear from the patient again. And they may not hear from the patient again for good reason, because uh, they've had their family and they're happy and they've moved on and they're pushing prams and going to centre parks or whatever, and that's great. Um, but that leaves a dilemma for the, uh, for the place storing that material. And they can't then discriminate between people who need it and people who don't. And sadly, there are too many stories of material that's been removed from storage and destroyed because the consent periods have elapsed and the, the, the facility thinks it's following the consent procedure and then two weeks later, the person walks through the door. And I've had that very experience and it's not a nice place to be in. So please, 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 if you're a patient listening and you've got material stored, uh, please do keep in contact. A phone call, a letter, responding to the to whatever they send to you, keeping your address up to date, and all of those things are, are really, really important. It's also really important to note as well, Alan, on that sense that when you've had the material taken as well, to just ensure that it is appropriate, because I, I just speak from personal experience, where we were under the illusion that Lee had sperm banked and I had eggs banked, and actually... Lee sperm wasn't good enough quality um but we were never informed so when we then a year later decided to go for treatment we'd never been informed that actually he didn't have any um so I think that it's just that line of communication isn't it it is and it's really complicated and and again that's one of the things I spent a lot of time doing in my 25 27 years we would have regular annual conversations with men uh, and women and their partners to say, look, this is what we've got. This is what it means. This is your consent period. What are your plans? Don't feel pressured, but we have to have this conversation. And it's, I felt it was like life coaching, actually. I think one of my roles was kind of doing that fertility coaching thing over a long period of time. And actually, in my new job in management now, I really do miss that, that kind of clinical contact because you, you saw people's lives develop and uh, we had we had tears of joy and tears of sadness in those consultation rooms often. Alan, you touched quite briefly about breast cancer and fertility. Just wondering, just in case anyone's listening, um, how does hormone treatment, so when patients are on long-term tamoxifen, letrozole and astrozole, post-radiotherapy, how does that affect fertility? And as you said about maybe waiting a year to try naturally, how would that affect them if they're perhaps going to be on tamoxifen for seven years or five years? Yeah, that's a good question. And to, to be honest, I can't remember the answer about tamoxifen. Uh, I think this is one where you have to have a, uh, you have to have a consultation with uh, a fertility specialist who can take all the factors into account. Some hormone therapies might suppress fertility temporarily that's i don't think that's the case with tamoxifen but i do know that that some do so that's something to um to bear in mind but i think some of these longer term therapies are troublesome actually in terms of understanding uh, what to do uh, and i think that's where the the evidence is is slowly emerging and uh, uh i do know that for women with breast cancer um the uh i think one of the fears is if I get pregnant, will my 
uh, will my tumours return or will I relapse because of the hormones that are in my body? But from my recollection reading of the literature, actually pregnancy is surprisingly protective uh, of, of future relapse for reasons that I don't fully understand. So, uh, but I think that's where, where a, a very specific consultation is needed, perhaps with a joint oncology team and reproductive medicine team to actually go through and unpick that. I do recall that kind of treatment holidays uh, to allow people to, to have pregnancy are very common, uh, but the specific circumstances I think have to be worked through. Interesting, yeah. and obviously if there's any literature that you know, we'll definitely link it in with this, because I think it's with quite a few, I think I've seen lots of um, breast cancer patients my age or younger at the moment. I think it's something that researchers, it's interesting that it's people are looking into it because it's quite important. Um, so obviously we're coming towards the end, Alan. Um, you've touched on a few brilliant top tips, but are, we always like to end with sort of top tips for general public or you know patients that are listening, students, anyone really. What would be a couple of things you might give for anyone listening around this area, so fertility and cancer? I think the I think the biggest top tip that I would give to patients and professionals alike is have an early conversation. Uh, make sure it's part of that initial discussion. It. It's a difficult discussion to have at the beginning. I can understand in that pl- those early planning meetings to then throw in fertility might seem like an added complication. But it's, it's often not possible to revisit fertility preservation once treatment has started. So it's vital that you have an early consultation and that you, 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 the pa- you assist the patient to make the right decision for them or if you're the patient that you make the decision that's comfortable for you and go into the treatment knowing that you've made the best decision possible. So early conversations are important. Post-treatment, I think it's post-treatment conversations are important too. Um, I've met too many people that have have put their head in the sand as patients. I've met too many professionals that didn't know what to do post-treatment and didn't know where to refer the patient or what to say to them. And I think, uh, you know, maybe not on day one of the post-treatment life is that when that conversation should happen, but the oncologists and the, the people involved in delivering that treatment will have a much stronger relationship with the patient in those early years than the people in reproductive medicine will have. We may have only seen them fleetingly for that fertility preservation. Uh, appointment if that's what they decided to do so I think for oncology professionals make sure that fertility is picked up in those um, those subsequent follow-up conversations over say the first five years and that then at the right moment you signpost that person back to fertility if that's what they they want to do and that's what I would urge because I think all too often it's forgotten I did a great on on uh, stage uh, conversation with a guy a few years ago uh, who who we went through this and he'd banked sperm and he'd survived his treatment but then he never had any thought about what he was going to do with his banked sperm and he sat on stage in front of 400 kids and said you know I could have used Google like everybody else but it just didn't occur to me and it was just the fact that we sat down and had a conversation I said well what are you going to do with this stuff and he said well what what can I do with it and I said well you could have some infertility treatment if you wanted and he said would they do that for me and I went, yes, of course they would. And we got him in the IVF unit and he, he had a young son as a consequence. And it's because people don't join the dots. And why should they? 
you know, they've been through a lot. So let's help people join the dots and, and have those conversations so they can be pointed in the right direction at the right time. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, that's been amazing. And I know that lots of people listening would have really benefited from your experience. And we will definitely put in lots of links to literature and support for anyone listening who wants to find out more. And obviously, Professor Alan Pacey has lots of literature and research out there. So you can, of course, um, Google him and access all of his literature as well. So thank you all for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Joe McNamara, and Naaman Jolka Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Professor Alan Pacey, MBE. Uh, head over to our YouTube page to see our live recording of the podcast, And if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to the resources and literature we've discussed. And to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Dr Emma Hyde, who will be discussing personalised care within diagnostic radiography. So thank you all for listening.